Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Good morning. Welcome, everybody. My name is Ronnie. I'm one of the pastors here at Gospel Community Church, and it's my privilege and honor to bring you God's word today. Uh, I want to apologize if I start uh, getting really high-pitched or have to take a second to get a drink of water because with these, the weather just going cold and warm, and my, my allergies are messing me up really bad. It's like somebody punched me in the face. Um, I was born and raised in, in Vegas and never experienced allergies until I moved here, and they are brutal. So please forgive me. If you're a guest attending, we welcome you. As Jake said earlier, our whole aim and goal is to make Jesus the hero. It's not about any one person or any one ministry here working together. Uh, I hope that came through even through last week's message on community and, and all these different parts of the body working together to lift up Jesus and make much of him. He is the true hero of all of human history that we want to point to, not any one person. So um, we just finished about a month ago, going through 1 Corinthians. And before we come into another book after Easter, we've taken a break to look at the values of Gospel Community Church. And as I, these aren't values that I think the Gospel Community Church is just doing a great job at, but they're more things that we see as biblical values that we want to grow in. And we finished off with community last week. And now, before we come into uh, Psalm Sunday and Easter, we're going to look at one more value. And this isn't gospel, one of Gospel Community Church's values, although I hope it is something we do value. This is one of God's values. I, I think it's one of his biggest ones, and that's his faithfulness. So today we're looking at God's faithfulness, and we'll start in Exodus 34, 6 through 7, but we will kind of move around a little bit as we explore God's faithfulness and what it looks like to move in response towards his faithfulness towards us. And so if you're looking for a main point or something to latch onto, that's it. Super simple, just the faithfulness of God. So I'll start by reading Exodus 34, 6 through 7, and then we'll dive in. The Lord passed before him, the hymn is Moses, and proclaimed, this is God speaking, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray you'd be here in this time, opening our ears and our, our eyes to see your faithfulness in the scriptures, how you've been faithful constantly, and I pray that it would help us move in faithfulness and in our commitments to one another that we would begin to emulate that same loyal love that you've had for your people for literally thousands and thousands of years, God. So we pray that, that this is something that we could hold on to and grow in as a church family here in Lane County. We love you, God. We thank you for the space and this time together. Amen. So starting at in Exodus 34, 6 through 7, just kind of looking at this, we're jumping into the middle of a passage, so let me just provide a little bit of quick context. If you look back at the preceding chapter, what's going on here is that Moses had asked something of God. He asked God to, to reveal himself to Moses, to make himself known. 
And God agreed. He said he said he would. Now, there was some stuff he asked Moses to do so that it could be safe for Moses to experience God and see the fullness of God. God's holiness, uh, his glory, his kavod would be too overwhelming for Moses just to face for a front uh, face to face. So he has to do some things in order for Moses to do, to do this or for God to do this for Moses. But God also says in verse 19 up in chapter 33 that he will also proclaim his name to him. So he's going to tell Moses a little bit about who he is. And this is what he says, abounding, and actually that's, so abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that abounding, that doesn't become before the, merc, the mercifulness of God, the graciousness, the fact that he's slow to anger, it comes right before steadfast love and faithfulness. To say it's overflowing, it's great, it's of, it's of great measure, this steadfastness of God, this loyal love of God. And it, it is vital as I said last week, in understanding our role and purpose here as God says, image bearers created in his image, to understand our role and purpose in this earth, it helps to look at the character and nature of God. We said last week, Jesus came in the form of a servant. So this is what it meant for us as human beings is to serve one another. And so to understand what our purpose is, how we're supposed to live in this world, it can help to look at the character of God. Calvin says this in his Institutes, nearly all wisdom we possess, all knowledge. Uh, to truly know ourselves, we need to first know God. And one of the ways that you can know God, this may sound weird at first, but, I'll, but I will explain and unpack this, and I think it's helpful to see this. One of the best ways you can get to go, know God is through his commands. His law actually reveals a lot about who he is. And it may sound weird at first, but this is true of any nation or you're even at like a household. The laws that they put on books can tell you a lot about what a culture values. If you were to go to Singapore, for instance, their laws are a little bit different than they are here in the U.S. And you would begin to see some things about that culture and what they value and, and place importance on. And, and in the same way, God does that with his commands. He's revealing to us a lot about who he is. And so... Sin, a word not very popular nowadays in American culture, sin is the Hebrew word used for that in the Old Testament is chata, and it means to miss the mark. And, and Romans 3 talks about this too, says that we've all sinned, but we've all fallen short of the glory of God. The thing with which we have fallen short of is his glory, his character, his nature. There's many catechisms, which those are teaching tools. If you're unfamiliar with a catechism, those are like teaching tools that the church has used throughout the centuries, usually for children, but even adults are like Q&A format, and it'll say, what is this? And then give an answer. In answering sin, uh, some of the catechisms take like three different questions just to address uh, what, what is sin. But the Westminster Catechism says that sin is any want of conformity or transgression of the law of God. So it's breaking the law of God, basically. It's the positive commands and the negative. Not doing what God has commanded you and doing the things that God has commanded you not to. I think that's a great answer to the question. I would just add a little bit more onto it and say that I, maybe as like a parallel alongside of that question, I would say that sin is any want of conformity or deviation from the character of God, from who he is. And this may sound crazy at first, but, but it's not too much. When you look at scripture and how the law, it, the law is talked about, 
And even the way in which Jesus commands us to live, he says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Uh, somebody challenged me on this once and, and they said, well, we're not supposed to take a, you know, we're not supposed to get on a cross and die for people's sins. So we're, you know, we're not supposed to do everything that God does. And I said, not exactly, but Jesus does say, take up your cross and follow me. That same act of selfless love, we are called to emulate in community with one another. We're called to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So it's true. But even just doing a flyover of the Ten Commandments, I've done this before, but I think it's helpful to look at those. I think when you examine some of God's law, you see even more and more of his character. There's a, are there any philosophy students in here or like uh, studying like Greek philosophy and stuff like this? Okay, so there's a couple. Has anybody ever heard of Euthyphro's Dilemma? Euthyphro's Dilemma, is that? No? It's a popular, I guess, argument I've seen on the morality of God. People, or people would bring this challenge to the church like, is God... Is the laws that God has given us to follow, are they good because God saw them and say, okay, that's a good thing? Or um, it basically comes down to, is God arbitrarily choosing the laws or were they good? And it's something outside himself that was pressed on God. Did God not have a choice but to say this was good and this was bad? And it's meant to be presented as a dilemma to show that like, look, your faith is, is confusing. You don't have an objective morality. You don't have this absolute law outside of time and space. But the truth is, the answer is neither. That dilemma that's presented, the laws are, are reflective of his nature. When God says, um, you know, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet, he can't, he literally cannot break those commands. He can't take someone's life that doesn't belong to him. He can't steal something that doesn't belong to him. He can't want something that doesn't belong to him. He is the originator of all life and all things. He's given all things. He can't lie. We've been commanded, don't lie. God can't break that command. Genesis 1-3, let there be light. And there was. When he speaks, the universe bends to his decrees. All his prophecies find their fulfillment by the power of his word. So therefore, he can't tell a lie. For him to speak is, is the same as for him to speak or, or to say truth. There's, there's no difference between the two. His word is truth. And one of the commands in the Ten Commandments was don't commit adultery. This, again, is pointing to another character of God, and we'll, we'll speak more on this later, but this is his faithfulness that that is pointing to. The laws he gave to the Israelites of protecting them and, and valuing life and keeping them alive, like mold and sterilizing equipment they won in battlefields, like we didn't learn about microbiology until thousands of years later, and God was using it in the Old Testament to protect his people. It's crazy and mind-blowing that uh, you know, he had the, obviously he's God, he knows about microbiology, he created it, but we didn't discover mold until like the 17th century and all these things, but he was already telling his people how to live and live well and healthy. He talks about putting a parapet around your roof because people, you know, it was hot in the Middle East and they would typically hang out on their roofs. And so he's saying, and we kind of have the same principle in the U.S., like keep your property safe. I mean, if somebody falls or, or something on your property, you know how they can like sue you in America? It's kind of, kind of derivative of that principle in a way, but it's protecting life because God has always existed. He is life. He's the essence of life. Non-existence is contrary to his nature, and so life is a good thing. L let, me do, let me do one more thing to demonstrate this, and then we'll move on talking about God's faithfulness. I just really wanted to set up for you that, the, that God's laws are reflective of who he is. Let me do one more thing. I'm going to read a couple selected verses from a psalm. And I will emphasize one phrase and just listen to this. This is the psalmist uh, praising God. He says, 
then I shall not be put to shame having my eyes fixed on my God. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from my God. I will delight in my God. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things from my God. My soul is consumed with longing for my God at all times. I will run in the way of my God. Behold, I long for my God, for I find my delight in my God. I will lift up my hands towards my God. Crazy, that's like a crazy song. He's, he's saying again and again, he's worshiping my God. Except that is not what that psalm says. In Psalm 119, what I did is I pulled out some verses. I actually switched the word your commandments with my God. And if you're unfamiliar with the psalm, you may not have thought that there was anything wrong at all. But the psalmist in this is actually saying like, I fix my eyes on your commandments. I, he's, he's literally at the end, he's lifting up his hands and worshiping the commandments of God. Why? That's weird. Almost seems like, like idolatrous or blasphemous, but he's essentially worshiping the character and nature of who God is. That he, he could replace these two. So the laws are a reflection of his goodness. Back to Exodus 20:14, when I was talking about the Ten Commandments, it says, "You shall not commit adultery." And basically, this is don't don't cheat on your spouse. And many people probably think, you know, when they look at the Ten Commandments, at least I haven't broken this one. Most people probably think, you know, I haven't broken this commandment. At least, the truth is, probably all of us have, if we're being real. One, because any sex outside of marriage is adultery. You're either committing it with somebody who will one day get married to someone else, or you yourself will be married to someone else. And so there, there are very good odds that you're already committing adultery. But also Jesus takes this and brings it even further and says that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In Matthew 5, 28. Now, that one is interesting. And some may cry foul, and many have. As a matter of fact, the late Christopher Hitchens, who was an atheist, who, he wrote books against God and, and constantly trying to attack the Christian faith. He said that this made God out to be a Korean thought dictator. Literally use those words. That's a, that's a quote from him. That God is a thought dictator that is so concerned about what you think and the impurities in your mind that he would punish you for the things that you think about other people. How terrible. This is what Christopher, Christopher Hitchens would say. But again, this is why I set up that principle. I think it's so important because in every single law, we see something about the character of God. And in this one, I absolutely think you see something beautiful about the character of God. Why is having lustful thoughts towards someone in your mind the act of adultery? Why is unfaithfulness in your mind failing to properly reflect the glory of God? Here's why, I think. Unfaithful thoughts miss the mark of his holiness because in all of his existence, his eternal existence, God never for even a second in his own thoughts wavered in his faithfulness to his people. It never entered into his mind for a second to be unfaithful to his people. And that's what this law is pointing to, his, his faithfulness, his loving his loyal love, that hesed that it talks about in Exodus 34, 6, his enduring commitment, that faithfulness, the emet, it says in Hebrew. And, and those, those words used to describe God, his hesed and his emet, I, I was kind of doing a little bit of a word study as I was prepping for the sermon, and I had to stop 
after about 30 times, these words used to describe God or even in relation to talking about God. God even uses of, him, of himself in Exodus 34, 6, saying who he is. So many times, and it could even be argued, these attributes are probably attributed to God more than anything else. His faithfulness, his loyalty. And even in the scriptures, if it's not explicitly said, it's implicitly said through the stories. The many stories throughout scripture speak of his loyalty, his faithfulness, his commitment. Look at Adam and Eve, the very first people. I mean, all they had to do was trust in his provision and things would have gone very well for them. If you were ever to scrap a project, wouldn't it be in the early hours of it? Has anybody ever worked on something and realized it wasn't going so well and just abandoned it within the first couple minutes and I'll try again? This would have been an easy out for God. These were literally the first two people. But God stays committed. He stays committed to humanity. With Abraham, Abraham failed to trust God. With Sarah, he ended up, he ended up sleeping with his wife's servant because he didn't trust in the timing of God's promise to deliver to him a son. And at this point, there was more than two people. God could have went and chosen somebody else. But he stayed committed to the promise that he had given Abraham to bless him and make him into a great nation. With Jacob and his children, we, we just as a church went through Genesis not too long ago, so hopefully some of these stories are familiar, but this family was messed up. They were deceitful. They were murderous. They sold their brother into slavery, and they were selfish all the way up to the point, even to, after their father died, they continued to look out for their own skin. And did God abandon them? Again, he remained faithful to this family. He was committed to them, committed to staying with them as their God, despite their rejection of him, the rebellion. We see in the Exodus story, the Israelites, all that God had given them, the freedom he purchased. And notice God gives them their freedom first and then gives him the commands. He doesn't say, here's some rules, follow them, and I'll let you out of Egypt. He pulls them out and then gives them his law so that they could know him even better and follow him. I said this last week, people were supposed to look at the laws of God and say, wow, what nation is this that has a God so near to them? The laws were, I mean, literally other nations are supposed to see the laws that God gave his people, and they were supposed to worship God. They were supposed to see these laws of love and application to one another and go, man, these people have a great God who's looking after them and caring for them and providing. But back to the Israelites, I mean, they had received freedom. They were grumbling against the food. They weren't trusting in the promises. And, and shortly after God gave them the, the Ten Commandments, they broke them almost immediately. They built up this golden calf and started worshiping them. And there were other nations. Again, God could have started over. There were other nations, probably stronger, probably bigger, more well-established, actually had some land to them. But God stayed committed to the Israelites. From David's adultery, King David's adultery, to, faithful, to the unfaithful uh, king after king after king after king. Uh, throughout all the Old Testament, many, many times God could have said, you know what, I'm done. I'm done with these people. And even through the last 2,000 years of church history, after Jesus Christ up until now, like there has been constant unfaithfulness in the church to God. And never once has he wavered in his commitment to us, all up until now, with you, me, us, all of us. How many times in our lives have we given a God a reason to pull his faithfulness out from underneath us? The breath we breathe, the very life we have, there's nothing we could have done to earn this. We didn't exist. It would have been impossible. It was a free gift given to us from God. And no matter how long we live, we could never earn it. How much is a human life worth to you? How much is a human life worth? 
in, in, in thousands and thousands of lives. You could never earn the life we've been given to God. And, and what's worse about this is we've given him reason after reason for him to take that breath he's given us and, and pull it back from us. And yet, in our rebellion, he still remains faithful to us. He's still a faithful God, committed to his people. The work he finished on the cross wasn't partly finished. It was, it was done. It was finished for his people. He will never turn away from that promise that he gave us. Regardless of the sin that we've committed, he is still a faithful God, even when contrasted against our rebellion. Second uh, Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Amen. We've been unfaithful him. We've been unfaithful to him for what? It's the average age of the people in this church, maybe 27 years old, maybe a little bit lower than that, 27. We've been unfaithful to him for what, 27 years? In this, in the Bible, we have roughly over 4,000 years of history laying out our humanity's lack of commitment to God and his unwavering steadfast love to his people again and again and again. And we're about to go into the book of Judges, and this is a great setup for that book. Uh, we're going to take a break for Easter, but as we come to the book of Judges, wow, it is crazy seeing God's faithfulness to these people who just constantly, you know, they, um, I mean, we'll all set this up here in about a month, but I, I'd love to go over again right now. Like literally they, they're kind of following God, but then they fall away. They forget about God because things are going kind of good. You know, because things are going good, they forget about God. They start doing their own things. And as soon as things go bad, what do they do? They start crying out to God, save us, save us. And what does he do? He just says, uh, never mind. I'm going back. These people are crazy. No, again, he comes back. He says, I'm, I'm here. I'm going to give you people to, to rescue from your situation. And the circle starts back over again. That's literally like the whole book of Judges. It's trusting God, forgetting about God, getting in trouble, crying out to him, God rescuing his people, and then forgetting again and again. Just this constant lack of faithfulness and commitment from God's people and God's loving, steadfast love for his people. We even see this in marriage. Uh, marriage that God gave us was meant to reflect something of the mystery of the gospel. I think all of the Bible is pointing to the gospel, and, and, but, but marriage as well is pointing to this commitment. It, it's like death to us part. It's radically different than the, our culture's understanding of love and romance and, and marriage and stuff. It's not, I'll stay with you as long as you give me this warm, fuzzy feeling. Tim Keller talks about the sparks from that first kiss and, and how, you know, like we, we make a big deal about the sparks we feel from romance and Tim Keller kind of casts shade on that. And, and I think rightfully so, like it's how selfish. I love you because of the way you make me feel. That's not God's love at all. And in the in marriage, what he gave us is saying what, what Christian marriage should look like is it should in some way reflect the gospel. If you let yourself go or if you commit some, some sin against me, I'm not just going to abandon my commitment to you. It, it's staying committed and loyal, demonstrating that same love that God has for us. The whole book of Hosea, if you go and read it, this is basically about God's relationship to his people in, in an interesting parallel. You should go read that book. Really short and interesting. So we really have no reason to doubt his faithfulness in light of his character. And the question is, what do you say to a God who's so committed to you despite your sin, your lack of faithfulness? What do you do for someone who will never leave you or forsake you? How then should you live because of what he has done? 
earlier, I, I mentioned that the God's commandments are a reflection of his character. And I think when we look at his character, it even calls us to be Christ-like, to be perfect, like our Heavenly Father is perfect. When we look at his character and his nature, these are things we're meant to reflect. His faithfulness is one of those attributes, one of the more important ones, that we as his people are meant to reflect and carry out with one another. Your loyalty, your steadfast love, your faithfulness, these give glory to God when you demonstrate these things. It's interesting, Jesus has a passage in Matthew 5, 36 through 37 talking about swearing um, on God. It's not swearing like you stub your toe and you say, you know, the, the GD phrase. It's more like, um, he, he says this. This will help explain a little bit better. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And James echoes this passage in James 5. I don't think that Jesus and James here are simply telling people, don't swear. Don't swear on God. What I think they're telling people here is to be faithful, to remain committed. There are some people, and maybe you've met these people, whose word has become so tarnished by their lack of commitment and faithlessness that they, they feel the need to swear on something to get you to trust in them. Have you ever heard this person before? I swear to God, I'll be there. I, I swear to God, I will be there. I swear. Or, you know, I, I swear on my grandma. I will pay you back tomorrow. I, will, I swear on my grandma. These people's reputation has become so tarnished, but they have nothing but their own words to give you confidence in their commitment. And Jesus is telling us not to do this. In Matthew Henry's Bible commentary, he says this of men when it comes to taking oaths in light of this passage. This is what he says. The worse men are, the less they are bound by their oaths. The better they are, the less there is need for them. And what he's saying is, if, if they're not going to be committed, if this is a person who constantly lets you down, lets the church down, if they make an oath, what, what's the point of it? The person that says, you know, I, oh, I swear I'll be there. I swear I'll be there. You might as well cross them off the lift. They're probably not going to show up. I wouldn't expect them to come. You might want to find someone else. But the person who just says, yes, I'll be there. They're, they're committed. They, they fulfill their commitments. They demonstrate the same commitment that God has. Mark was talking about this in our, in our community group. He brought up an excellent point on, on commitment and loyalty and faithfulness. Half the time, it's just showing up, just being there. And not to pat everybody here on the back, but like, and, and everybody at home tuning in, but like just showing up and, and being part of the church it is an act of faithfulness because Jesus showed up. He came. He was present. He was here. That was one of the first things he did is he stepped into humanity. He stepped into our suffering and our weakness. He showed up. When, when looking at God's faithfulness, his commitment to his people for all these reasons, there's so many excuses God could have given to back out and, and leave his people behind. And the faithfulness which drove him to the cross for his people and fulfilling his Old Testament promises, uh, we'll, we'll close with this. The Old Testament promises with which uh, God said he would fulfill and has fulfilled with Jesus. He, he fulfilled that commitment. He came, uh, God sent Jesus to come to live perfectly for us, to die on the cross, fulfilling Old Testament prophecies, saying that these things would come to pass. God never bailed. He came through for us. 
And when we reflect on this character and the way it's been lived out in Scripture by God, this story that is constantly pointing to his loyalty, his faithfulness, as essential to who he is, who God is. You cannot know him without knowing his steadfast love and his faithfulness, his commitment to his people. And as we are designed to reflect God's character, his nature, his goodness in relation to him, faithfulness to him, Paul talks about, running the race faithfully, but also our commitment to one another, our loyal love to one another and fulfilling our commitments and fulfilling needs within the church and being there for one another. When we do that, we give glory to God. We don't earn salvation by doing those things. We don't earn merit with God. He doesn't now all of a sudden see you serving faithfully in the church and go, oh, there's my, you know, my beloved daughter, my beloved son, like you've done well. No, God already sees you as that because of Jesus. He sees you as having been perfectly faithful, perfectly loyal. And now we get to live in response to what God has already done for us. He's made us that faithful servant through Jesus Christ. He's made us faithful. And so we live out of this. And despite all the reasons he should walk away from us, he never will. And he has demonstrated amazing commitment to us. If you, if, if you doubt his loyalty, if you doubt his commitment to you, you aren't reading the Bible. You're, you're looking at the world or you're looking at yourself and your own efforts. And you're placing your hope and confidence in how well you follow and obey God. And that is a dangerous path. Uh, it is one of the most dangerous, or it is the dangerous path. There is no da more dangerous path to be on, to look to yourself and your own confidence and saying, look how faithful I'm being to God. Surely he will save me in the end. And that's 100% the opposite direction of what the gospel is. It is his faithfulness that we trust in. So let us honor God and live in a way that does not profane his nature in showing steadfastness in our commitments to one another our loyalty to God, our loyalty to one another. As I said before, when we don't do the things that reflect God's nature, we essentially lie about who he is. When we lie, when we tell a lie, we're telling two lies. We're telling the lie we told, and we're saying that God is a liar. As a, as a, as a creature created in his image, we're saying, yeah, the God I was created in, sure, he lies too. Look at me, I'm lying. But that's a failure to reflect who he is. And in our lack of faithfulness and commitment, we also lie about the character of God and, and bring dishonor upon God when we, when we live in a way that's not consistent with his faithfulness. So let us rejoice in the faithfulness with which he has demonstrated for us and now defines us by and live out of that identity in church and relationship to one another and demonstrating that loyal love that, that has said that faithfulness uh, to God's people and to the church. Amen. Let's pray. God, we live in a day and age where it is incredibly easy to back out of our commitments. There's a lot of unfaithfulness in our culture and a lack of loyalty when we look at marriages across the nation. And I pray that these would not be markers of Gospel Community Church, that you would raise up faithful men and women in the church that are committed to loving and serving the church and serving God, that we would live in such a way that people would bring glory to God, that they would begin to ask us, why are we faithful? And we can point to your faithfulness, God. And I pray that we could rejoice on your faithfulness this week. Thank you for always being there, God, and never forsaking us. You have countless reasons to do so, but you never do. 
We love you, God. Amen.